0: If I looked at the cost and, and relative to how much exposure I was getting both on the small cap space and on the value space, you know, where the DFA fund looks seven times more expensive solely on the expense ratio, the Vanguard fund actually ends up being five times more expensive when you consider the cost relative to how much exposure we're getting both on small and value.
1: Welcome to Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Find answers to your toughest questions and get educated about the financial world. It's time to Retire Smarter. It's time for another episode of Retire Smarter. I'm Walter Storholt alongside Kevin Krosky, President and Wealth Advisor at True Wealth Design, serving you in Northeast Ohio and Southwest Florida. You can find us online at truewealthdesign.com. That's truewealthdesign.com. Kevin, great to be with you today. We are, in full disclosure to our listeners, recording this on uh, Thursday morning after the election, so November 5th, uh, bright and early. And so things are still undecided. We technically still don't know who the president of the United States will be in the uh, you know midterm uh, future. I guess we know who will be in the near future for the next month or two. That's still set in stone. But uh, come late January, we still don't quite know who will be occupying the White House, although things seem to be leaning a particular direction. How have you been this week tracking all of the news? And uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're a little bit like me, a little bit sleep deprived, trying to stay up late, watching the late votes come in and that kind of thing. <laughs> no,
0: my, uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, <laughs> and I'm uh, happy to be here. But you know, my- my, uh, my Fitbit tells me every night I go to sleep about eight thirty or maybe nine o'clock if I if I get uh, really uh, wild and stay up for the extra thirty <laughs> minutes. But, you know, it's just how it works. And I wake up in the morning, have some coffee and just see what transpired. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how everything you know plays out here in the next couple of days. And then I'm sure there's going to be ongoing legal maneuvering for a while. But, you know, just kind of a brief redux on some of the things we've talked about. And, you know, we got a lot of questions from clients about, you know, concerns about the election going one way or the other and then its impact on. The economy and then the link to the markets and hey you know should we do anything and we've talked about that a lot but basically what we had described was you know you don't necessarily know uh what is uh, not only going to happen so say you know biden is elected and then you know they want to do some sort of policies well you know You don't know what's going to get passed just because they have an idea. And you don't know, you know, once they pass that, uh, supposing that they do how that's really going to go ahead and impact, you know, those parts of the economy or those industries or how those companies are going to respond. Uh, So the linkage is definitely not direct whatsoever. And then when you go another rung down, you don't know how that's going to correspond to how investors are going to feel about that and interpret that information. So we tend to think in a very linear fashion. And the world's much more complex than that. The markets are much more complex than That. And so the message that I've been sharing with clients that particularly had these concerns is look, you know, we can see some volatility here over, you know, kind of November and December. You know, it's certainly possible that. Things could go uh, be very tight, be contested. Hopefully, there's not any sort of um, kind of breakout of uh, people fighting in the streets or, or what have you. And maybe a good thing that Walmart uh, paused on their on their sales of guns and ammunition for a while, I suppose. But um, but we have a very tight and what looks to be a contested election in several states you know more so than what we had in bush and gore 20 years ago and the markets are actually gotten less volatile the last couple days and they've actually responded quite positively both pretty much every day this week they're up and they look to be up a good bit today you know they were down a little bit last week but the mantra was you know, don't let politics mess up or influence your investing decision or your investing process. And and this is played out exactly uh, in alignment with that thinking. So we, we did have some clients that, candidly, you know, we talked through this. I said, financially, I don't recommend making an investment change. They uh, Then we went to the qualitative side and a couple of them just said, you know, I'm just gonna sleep better at night knowing I have a little bit less money in the stock market and have more money in bonds. I said, look, you know, we talked about the financial side, certainly the qualitative side and the emotional side is important too i don't want to be keeping you up at night uh, and you know hey if you want to do that that's fine you know it's your money and you certainly you, you have the ability to do that but we always start with the financial and the more reasoned approach and then we can talk about more the feeling side and that's that's pretty much how we do you know everything we, we certainly believe in doing math and, and sticking to process and science but you know we're humans and we have to be pragmatic at the same time. so it's good to see that that pragmatic uh, approach or that that reasoned thinking process is playing out and it's good to see that you know today anyway, there hasn't been any, uh, just any kind of fighting in the streets or anything like that. Uh, We'll see how it plays out. But it looks like uh, probability-wise that Trump's not going to retain the Oval Office, but uh, the Republicans are going to retain the Senate. So we will have a divided government. And uh, on surface, I'd love to think that, hey, it's, hey guys, it's going to make you (laughs) You know, work together. You're going to have to work things out, right, Walter? I mean, it sounds good. We're going to come back together and and not have all this bipartisanship and what it's the utopia we dream about. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, And if past is is prologue, I mean, it seems like, you know, there's probably just going to be a lot of stalemate. And then, you know, maybe people are going to just try to position for the next election in two years and and try to get some power. So we'll see what happens. You know, again, politics don't interest me that much. but we at least have to be kind of aware of it because it's on the minds of our clients and we have to be informed to talk them through times like these.
1: It was interesting on election night it just goes to show you that the markets are going to do what the markets do and, uh, you know, we were expecting such extreme volatility. And it was interesting. I was watching the betting markets uh, overnight, Kevin. I think that picked up a lot of steam from certain circles and people kind of just watching what, what you know, all these pollsters seem to be way off and what they can predict. What about the bettors? And I think even the bettors proved that they um, are, are, you know, uh, definitely uh, susceptible to wild swings as it was from very heavy action on Biden to then when Trump uh, seemed to win Florida. I think I saw numbers up in the 75% range that now Trump was going to win the White House, and then they swung right back the other direction just another hour or two later back to very heavily favored to Biden. So, you know, if you were trying to – if you were extrapolating that out to the stock market and trying to time and pick and see which direction things were going (laughs) – I mean, you'd have been pulling your hair out with this this wild swings at that time, and that's just another kind of warning against um, you know trying to speculate and uh, trying to time things like that because it just so rarely works out for folks.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, it's it's not investing, it's speculating or it's gambling. Like like you said, these betting markets, it's gambling, right? And um, when <laughs> so we believe in investing. If we had uh, I had an email from a friend who's also a client the other day. Uh, sent me the email the other day, and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this and um, you know, it's kinda gonna go, go on Robinhood and try to do some day trading strategies. <laughs> you know, like, you have any resources for that? I'm like, well, you know, the evidence shows about 80 or 90% of people that do mo- do that lose money. So the odds aren't in your favor. And, and the way the trading is today with something called high frequency trading, the probability is probably even less. So just know that whatever you put in, it's like going to the casino and, and pulling the slot machine and you might actually have better odds at the slot machine. So uh, don't have any resources for you but good luck (laughs) he he just replied back with a little smiley face uh emoji so um you you just kind of have to know what what you're doing and then you know we're on the retire smarter podcast so obviously everything we're talking about here from an investment perspective is really kind of investing that serious money uh to go ahead and produce that income and make sure your money lasts a little bit longer than you do uh if you are going to go ahead and speculate you know and we have some clients with hobby accounts and things like that that. They're investing, but it's uh, they're doing it in a way that um, I would say is probably not as prudent as the the process of, the science-based process that we prescribe to. But it's they acknowledge that hey, they've been picking stocks. Maybe they started with their dad when they were a kid. They're doing it for all these years. It's a little bit on the enjoyment side too, and they're not. It's not like they're going out there and day trading or something like that. But there, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think the important part is. Kind of really having that clean perspective about, you know, what you're doing and what it is and what it isn't. And when you go to the casino um, and you're pulling (laughs) a one-armed bandit, hopefully you know that that's not an investment and that's that's more on the entertainment side.
1: Well, I'm going to make a loose segue and transition into our main topic of the day. You mentioned the Robinhood app, and, and by you know, no means am I trying to, to bash any way of investing or uh, I think that level of access that some of these new apps provide people to be able to buy stocks and participate in investing and saving in different ways is, is largely a good thing. Um, but it is kind of interesting where it seems like we're always looking for the easiest or the cheapest uh, way to go about it like when people think about getting into investing um, for the first time you look for the easy way to get into the equation so like what's the is it Robinhood or maybe it's another one that offers like where you can buy parts of shares um, so if you you can't afford a full share of amazon you can buy just a piece of of amazon a share of a share um, we're always sort of looking for that cheap investment or that cheap way to get our foot in the door I think that segues a little bit into what you wanted to talk about today, Kevin, and why you may not want to choose the cheapest investment option. I think you're looking at it at a little bit larger scale in terms of planning for retirement and um, you know, your, your life savings and what you're doing with those funds. But I think the, uh, the parallels and the ideas certainly kind of go hand in hand.
0: Yeah, so I had a couple of things that, and that's a great segue, Walter. You're you're very good at what you do. Um, but I had a couple of things that came up in my world recently. I had a client ask, you know, hey, why why do you pick this fund versus another fund? You know, this other one seems to be a lot cheaper. So why are you picking this one? Uh, and then also, <laughs> I got a burrito from a food truck uh, last week, and it was this big, beautiful chicken burrito. It was. It was huge I'm like oh man how am I gonna eat this thing and then my wife I said that my wife looked at me she's like well you know you're not gonna have a problem eating it and she was right <laughs> but, but as I opened up the chicken burrito I'm like I felt like that lady I think it was the uh, the Wendy's commercial back in the 80s like where's the beef I mean there was like it was like a chicken (laughs) where's the chicken there was like a pound maybe a pound and a half of a burrito and there was rice and beans and cheese and you name it it was in there but like i had to go through this thing for chicken and i literally went through and picked out all the chicken and it probably amounted about two ounces and and so i'm one of those people like my wife and i go out to eat um not that she's a complainer but she's more more likely to complain about her meal or a drink than I am. I think it's, I worked in the service industry growing up. My mom worked in it. So I started bussing tables when I was you know, 14, started waiting tables when I was 16, started bartending when I was 18. It was just kind of how I was. So maybe I have a little bit more empathy, but <laughs> when it comes to my chicken and my chicken burrito, I want a good bit of it, you know, and, and I got two ounces. And, and so I went back and I kind of and just asked for my money back and, and figured out something different for dinner. But it just made me kind of think about this, you know, are you really paying for what you're getting? our price and value kind of matching up. And so if I try to kind of bridge the gap here between uh, my my chicken burrito, that really wasn't a chicken burrito, but just a big burrito with lower priced ingredients, um, when we look at the investment side- The discount uh, burrito. The discount burrito, <laughs> right? When you look at the investments, um, there's different costs that go into the investments. And if we hearken back, we. Uh, I forget the episodes. I think they were in in the '30s, but we did a four-part series on the investing process, and we really started big picture, you know, looking at the recipe that we wanted for our investments, and then getting down to the ingredients. And I can't recall exactly, but I don't think we got very deep, uh, if at all, into the ingredient selection. So what we're talking about today is really kind of, you know, after we figured out what we want to own, really getting into well, you know what sort of investment option, what mutual fund or what have you do we actually want to go out and select to use as an ingredient in our investment recipe. So expense ratios, you know, those are very easy to find out. You just type in a ticker symbol for any sort of mutual fund or ETF and you can find that online very clearly. It's I'd liken it to an iceberg and uh, Walter, I'll ask you a question here, but when you think of an iceberg floating in the water, you've probably seen these images about the proportion of the iceberg that is above the water relative to the proportion that is below the water. Right. Have you seen those sort yeah, of pictures? Just a,
1: the, the, when you see the iceberg above the water, just a tiny bit of what's really under, lurking under the water.
0: You got it. The tip of the iceberg is really exposed uh, above the water, and there's much, much more mass below the water. So the expense ratio um, is is... Kind of like that, you know, it's it's the stuff that's easily observable. It's the tip of the iceberg Maybe it's more than the tip of the iceberg, um, but it kind of depends on what's below uh, the surface So the expense ratios are certainly a good starting point And there's very clear evidence uh, that the higher the costs are, it's correlated to lower investment returns, all else being equal. So if you have fund A and fund B and fund A costs 1% and fund B costs one half percent and everything else is pretty similar between the two, you would certainly go ahead and choose fund B. So that's... Straightforward tip the iceberg stuff some of the other costs though that people aren't really aware of uh, I'll talk about and some other things that kind of impacted uh, Trading costs are one. Um, so you kind of mentioned this uh, with Robinhood or some of the Even a lot of the custodians now have uh, what they call zero commissions So there's no commissions to buy or sell like a stock or an ETF and and rest assured, these companies aren't doing it just out of the goodness of their heart. They're making money on other ways that that may not be <laughs> above the iceberg. You know, if you pay a commission to buy or sell a stock, it's very explicit. It's, it's above the water part of the iceberg, if you will. Um, but a lot of the companies that engage in these zero commission trading practices, I think it's probably good marketing in a sense, uh, because uh, from their standpoint, they can say, well, we give you free commissions, but we'll make money in these other ways that are much less transparent and are gonna be below the surface of the water. Um, I prefer transparency overall, but, um, but you're seeing a lot of that happening today. So when it comes into these trading costs, again, the explicit ones are the commissions, the or sell, uh, all commission costs have really come down quite a lot over the last you know 20 or 30 years or so uh the other type of trading costs are implicit um and this is again a little bit more of a gray area but you know if you are going ahead and um selling something or buying something there's actually different prices uh you have uh, a sell price and a buy price and there's a spread cost in between so um, people that make markets uh facilitate the buying and selling of stocks Again, they don't do it for free. There's risk in what they do. And so the market makers will take a little bit of a spread. And uh, the other thing that goes with the sort of implicit costs are, you know, if you're trading uh, in large enough quantities or in, in a thinly traded security, you can actually move the market. It's It's basically, it's kind of a liquidity cost where if you're seeking liquidity to go ahead and get out of a position by selling it. Uh, the market will provide it to you. The market maker will help facilitate that, but they're going to do it at a cost. And the more liquidity you need, it's like going to the bank and the banks don't operate for free. They provide liquidity. Uh, they'll lend money, but there's an interest rate. You know, So it's the same sort of principle, um, but there's basically these spread costs that happen there or um, these market impact costs. So uh, if I back up again here for a moment, so costs that are above uh, the water on the iceberg, expense ratio, any explicit commissions to buy or sell, stuff that is below the water, you have implicit costs uh, related to these bid-ask spread, which were really big in February and March of this year when the whole coronavirus uh, came about and market volatility really spiked. So if you were looking to you know buy or sell a position, the spread costs were really, really high. Uh, and then also the market uh, impact costs of basically moving in or out of a position and moving the market and then once that liquidity is is found uh, the price tends to fall back to where it was before that liquidity seeker entered the market all else being equal so um, helpful just to kind of think about it in terms of the iceberg Uh, something else that is is not necessarily uh, a cost but uh, something that a lot of funds do and again something that most people aren't aware of, um, but it, it can be quite profound. Uh, and, and I would call it better engineering. Um, so the trading costs can be better engineered. I won't get into the different ways they do it. It gets you know, pretty egg Uh But then the securities lending revenue. So uh, some of the funds that we utilize will go ahead and lend out securities that they own in the fund to people that um, maybe they're short sellers, maybe they are some of those liquidity seekers that I mentioned. And it's actually cheaper for them to borrow the securities and pay an interest rate, rather than go out and buy the securities and expose themselves to some of those costs that we just mentioned, as far as the implicit cost of seeking liquidity in the market. So, for for and, and these tend to be like smaller companies um, or in foreign markets, particularly. It does happen with large U.S. equities, but not nearly as much as some of the smaller, um, more esoteric asset classes, just because you know those those markets are tend to be a little bit less liquid. But the securities lending revenue, and in, in just kind of a short order how it works, the mutual fund will go ahead and lend out, say, stock A and stock B to, you know, this other investment firm. The investment firm will actually post collateral in the form of generally U.S. government debt, you know, short-term treasury bills, uh, and then they pay an interest rate. So it. The mutual fund really isn't taking risk in doing it because it's fully collateralized. If that, if the person that they lent the stock to goes out of business, for example, well, they they're already collateralized. They have the treasury bills, and so you know they're they're made whole. Some of the funds that we utilize actually have securities lending revenue in excess of the expense ratio. Uh, so let me say that again: the securities lending revenue that they will go ahead and receive for the fund. Will actually be in excess of what the expense ratio you know kind of the major cost above the water and the iceberg picture um, actually is so and again securities lending revenue just better engineering some of the trading costs can be better engineered uh, as well these are things that we can control without having to predict you know what stocks are going to do better or worse or what have you so we went through just kind of recap what we're doing there's one other thing that i want to talk about from a cost perspective but You look at the expense ratios again. Very easily observed above the water trading costs. uh, Any commissions you buy or sell are above the water, but you know things where you're kind of moving the market or these what they call these bid ask spread costs—the difference between the you know the. Buy price and the sell price um though it's definitely below the water and the more trading that a mutual fund does this is usually measured in something called turnover you can find these sort of statistics on morningstar but the more trading the more those uh, those costs are going to be uh, so that's something that's important to know and then the securities lending revenue it's not a cost but it's just uh, basically a a good way to engineer a fund um, and lend out securities in a very safe and collateralized way to offset some of the costs. So it's, again, it's not truly a, a cost, but I would, I would say it's something that is below the iceberg. People don't really know about it. And then I, the other thing I should mention is um, like the funds that we use credit 100% of the securities lending revenue back to the fund. So back to the shareholders. There are several exchange traded funds that are out there that, that don't do that. So they may advertise a very low expense ratio, but then another way that they will make money is they'll engage in the securities lending revenue, and then uh, they will just pocket that. They won't credit to the shareholders. So uh, different ways to go about kind of doing this and making money, but again, rest assured that none of these companies are doing this for free. So it's important to understand the cost both above and below the water and i mentioned when we first started uh, that i had a client question about hey why we were picking you know this fund versus that fund and so i walked them through like you know just kind of rolled back Back the curtains a little bit, kind of walk them through the thinking. And this gets, I would say, this is a more of a better engineered approach as well. Uh, but more recently in the market, um, smaller companies have been kind of beaten up through COVID. It's really been kind of the big, pr- predominantly U.S. companies uh, that have done better. Uh, and as as they've gotten beat up, they've gotten cheaper and arguably more favorable, more favorably priced, And, you know, we think that they should provide some some good returns and some diversification moving forward. So we, we wanted to buy more of it, basically. And so that was our, our allocation decision, you know, filtering into our investment process and determining our investment recipe. But then we had to figure out, well, hey, what ingredient do we want to go ahead and fulfill that uh, recipe? So I'll just give a simple example. Uh, There's a Vanguard small cap value fund. And uh, the one that we chose was actually uh, a small cap value fund fund from Dimensional Fund Advisors. If you solely look at the expense ratio, it look DFA Dimensional Fund Advisors DFA for short looks to be seven times more expensive. Um, the small cap value fund for them was like 0.53% and then the Vanguard uh, is 0.07 that was for the for the Admiral share class. So you look at that and this is what the client did. They said, "Hey, this is, you know, seven times more expensive. Why don't we just buy the Vanguard one?" And so when I walked them through it we're trying to get an exposure to small companies and also to these value type companies and so the way that we do it is we look it's again this gets a little egg heady but um, if we have a true exposure to small companies and we think small companies are going to provide a premium higher return uh, than the market in general maybe that's one percent maybe it's two percent you know who knows and that's certainly no guarantees but there's some science behind it that that should work out over time so if uh for example the dfa fund has a loading towards small companies as we measure this uh and let's just say it's 0.8 and and it was actually 0.82, the Vanguard loading factor was 0.55. So if you get one, you have a full exposure to it. And we're we're not going to get there for some other kind of technical reasons. But basically said another way, uh, the DFA fund was smaller uh, than uh, the Vanguard fund. And on the value side of the equation, uh, the Vanguard had a 0.32 loading, where uh, the DFA fund had a 0.46 loading. So, if I looked at the cost and, and relative to how much exposure I was getting, both on the small cap space and on the value space, you know, where the DFA fund looks seven times more expensive solely on the expense ratio, the Vanguard fund actually ends up being five times more expensive when you consider the cost relative to how much exposure we're getting both on small and value. And, and and that matters again, because we expect that there's going to be a premium for owning small companies and we expect there's going to be a premium for owning value companies. So if we have a positive return expectation there and we can get exposure to it cheaper, then we expect the DFA fund to outperform the Vanguard fund. So let me Walter let me pause because I know I just kind of went down the rabbit hole a little bit there but um, let's let's bring it back and clarify for our listeners if I sounded too egg heady or it was kind of theoretical.
1: I started a drinking game on this end of the microphone. Every time you say egghead, I, uh, I take a shot. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like um, we, we definitely have some proud eggheads among the listening crowd, Kevin. I know that for a fact. So I think they were eating up everything you were talking about over the the last couple of minutes. But I'm sure we've got some folks that are like, okay, I think I get it. And I'm probably in that crowd of there's all these metrics. Like You listed so many different metrics. I'm just thinking like a couple of things. One, um, I'm trying to understand the the above-the-iceberg metrics are the kind of things that a lot of people look at, and you guys try to look at the below the surface of the sea, the the lower part of the iceberg metrics as well, to see what's the full picture truly, not be kind of fooled by what's just on the surface. And then sort of takeaway number two is sort of figuring out this idea of, uh, at least for me, like... How can you reach a conclusion when you have that many variables, that many things to try and decide the human brain trying to analyze all these different things and say, OK, this is good, this is bad, this is OK, to then actually come to a conclusion of, yeah, this is a good good option to go in. It just seems very overwhelming the amount of variables and levers that can be pulled in analyzing these decisions.
0: I think it's it's almost just like going on the Internet, right? I mean, somebody can go out and read something on the Internet. There's tons of information that's out there, but really what's the relevant information, what's good information, I think, you know, we're a big filter for clients. You know, oftentimes they'll read something and have a question and, you know, they'll rely on us to go ahead and and filter that for them and explain to them, Hey, just like we talked about at the beginning, you know, does the election matter for my investment strategy? Uh, the short answer is no, but you know, we kind of have to walk them through, you know, why that's the case and what have you and filter through the noise uh, to focus on what really matters and same sort of thing when it gets into the details. And this does get kind of on the a little bit down in the weeds but i think it's just important for people to understand this you know when you look at both of those like vanguard's a great mutual fund family you know, we use uh, both Vanguard and dimensional funds heavily in our practice for our our clients, uh, money that we, that we manage for them. And, um, but you still need to go through this sort of decision-making process and yeah, you want to make sure that the the total costs are low. Um, certainly want to start with the expense ratios, but it it really is that total cost approach, uh, and, and not just on the cost side, but value too. So maybe I can close with uh, another analogy, but you know when you look at buying a car you can go out and you can buy the, the the cheapest car that's out there i mean you know years ago i think it was probably a yugo or something and now you have uh kias and and what have you that came into the market and and they're definitely on the, the the lower price side and i'm not saying that kias aren't aren't good cars or anything like that um but when you look at the total cost of ownership you know what you pay for the car is only one thing i would say i would liken that to the expense ratio but when you look at the total cost of ownership you know, what are, what's the insurance cost going to be? Some cars are way more expensive to insure than others. You know, some are more fuel efficient, you know, depends on, does that matter, you know, based on how much you're going to drive or, you know, your kind of social and environmental preferences. Also, you know, what's going to be kind of the, the repair and maintenance bill, both expected as well as unexpected. You know, you have the Highline, you know, the BMWs and the Audis of the world are going to be more expensive to, to maintain, but you're probably going to, you know, arguably going to have less Maintenance that you're gonna have to do on them because they're supposed to be better built. And then when you look at resale value at the end of the ownership, well, some cars are gonna hold their value better than others. Um, I have a Jeep Wrangler, I've had them for years, I love them. I mean, they just don't depreciate that much. Um, There's a lot of value there that's on the the other side of it when you do go ahead and, and, and sell it. So it's really looking at all those factors We do it for cars, you know, doing it for the investments are much more difficult, I would say. Um, Expense ratio is an easy place to start, but some of the other things that we talked about definitely are below the water and it definitely gets into some pretty technical areas. So you get car purchase sites like admins and some others that will really help you walk through like a total cost of ownership approach and figure out what's the best decision for you Uh, we do the same thing when it comes to a mortgage you know hey does it make sense to pay for a 30-year interest rate a higher interest rate when you're probably going to be in the home for seven years you know, probably not. So all these, this sort of thinking process, I think, applies to whether you're buying a chicken burrito, whether you're buying a car, um, whether, you know, what kind of mortgage you're gonna use or what sort of investments that you're gonna use to fulfill your investment recipe. But it's a similar, I guess, process, even though the the data points and what have you are different. And the further down you go, you know, it does get more technical and probably more difficult for the novice or even a well-informed, I mean, we have a lot of smart clients that handle their money by themselves for years did a pretty good job of it but uh, i have yet to meet one that really understood some of the more fine tuned things that we just touched on on a high level today in terms of the training costs securities lending revenue the factor exposure what have you and and they also tend to miss you know a lot of the tax implications and the tax efficiency on the investments as well we we really enjoy working with smart successful people Um, but you know we do this every day and and even if they have a passion for it. You know, they look at it and say, you know, hey, maybe I can, you know, read the Wall Street Journal a couple hours on the weekend or something like that. I mean, I mean, it's just different than, you know, spending your career every single day and getting professionally trained to do this sort of thing. So the, I think that's where you see some of the differences, but uh, the process really applies to many different aspects of our life.
1: I think that's really great to compare it to the car shopping because all it is is lots of different data points and uh, making, you know, and you're kind of weighting each little data point too. Like, uh, all right, how important are the cup holders? How important is the size of the vehicle? Okay, got this safety ranking, just because it was lower than this vehicle doesn't necessarily mean that the other one's gonna be the winner because, I may value that piece of the equation. A little bit lower. And I imagine you're also doing the same thing. It's not not all of the data points are equal in your minds. You're placing different value to certain ones because of, I don't know, could be the time of the year. It could be how close we are to an election, what the markets have done recently. I'm sure there's lots of other factors that go into it that help you weight that, or maybe how the, the client feels about risk or about certain elements. So there's still some little subjective things that then help you kind of fine tune and, and tweak those things as well, it sounds like.
0: It completely. And I guess one other thing that you just triggered in in my brain Um, so we uh, I apologize to those that are you're very environmentally friendly. But for the Krosky household, our car purchases, I mean, we have big SUVs, we have a big family, we got big dogs. Um, but also, when you look at the different safety ratings, and this is one thing where you kind of look at the data, but looking at something and interpreting something are two different things. It's like you know a radiologist looking at a film, and you can have two different radiologists that interpret the film differently. And um, one could be right, and one could be wrong. So... You know, you really need that wisdom and expertise to know how to interpret and, and the information and figure out what really matters. But when I looked at the car safety data and like, you know, you get these different uh, vehicles that they have a better car safety record than the SUVs. But one thing that is completely omitted from those figures is, you know, if you have a little... Um, oh, let's just say a Toyota Prius, you know, crashing into our big behemoth SUV, and they're both going at the same rate. Who do you think is going to win that, Walter?
1: Yeah, I'd like to be in the SUV in that equation. Mm
0: Yeah. And, you know, nobody wants to get in an accident, but, you know, the, the mass of the vehicle, it's a basic, you know, it's Newton's law of physics. Um, We we
1: don't need a subjective opinion on that battle,
0: right? (laughs) No, you don't, but it's not in the data. And so I looked at this, I'm like, this just doesn't make sense. And there's, I mean, we're spending a lot of time in Florida and I think there's plenty of terrible drivers that are down here we have you know some young kids that and we just want to protect ourselves and so candidly I look at it as a bit of an insurance policy yeah it costs me more in gas yes it's a little bit less environment environmentally friendly but for us and for our values we want to prioritize the safety of our family first
1: that's the that's one of the trade offs one of the subjective pieces that needs to be taken into the equation uh just like the amount of chicken in your burrito um you know there's some people that would have been okay with that amount that was not pleasing to you, and no. you demanded it, that to be righted so <laughs> I love it. you're gonna have to find a new burrito spot though it sounds like.
0: Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going back there for
1: sure. <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, I really loved the breakdown on the show today, Kevin. It was interesting to see all those different data points that truly exist under the, uh, under the water, the, the true size of the iceberg when it comes to evaluating investments and why the cheapest investment option, just like the cheapest piece of clothing, the cheapest car, and and many, many other examples we can talk about isn't always the best option to go with. And and certainly back at the very beginning, the cheapest burrito either. Um, And if you have maybe planned your financial life that way a little bit, or your investing life, you've kind of looked for the cheap investments as a way to get through, or maybe you are just uh, having some questions about what we talked about today and want to talk a little bit more in depth about what you can do in your financial plan as you think about the future Uh, it's easy to get in touch with kevin and talk these things out it's got a great team of course at true wealth design serving you in northeast ohio and southwest florida here's how to get in touch if you've got any questions 855-TWD-PLAN that's 855-893-7526 or you can go to truewealthdesign.com and click on the are we right for you button to schedule your 15-minute call with an experienced financial advisor on the true wealth team to get the process started. Kevin, thanks for the guidance and walking us through all this on the show today and uh, for the stories as well, entertained by the burrito story. That was good stuff. And uh, we'll look forward to another episode with you soon.
0: All right. Appreciate it, Walter. Thank you. All right. Take care. That's
1: Kevin Krosky. I'm Walter Storholt. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next time right back here on Retire Smarter.